significance of these things with Pastor Mike. And, um, and so this is a, just a reiteration for you. But I think it's just good for us all to be mindful of these uh, basic truths of what this is about. Why do we walk ourselves down into the water in front of a crowd of onlookers uh, to do this odd little ceremony? It's not so that we can show off, right? I mean, to see me walking up out of the water, you know, I'm no David Hasselhoff or anything like that. So nobody's going to spend any money for that show. So that's not, it's, it's got to have some significance, right? Why, why would we do these sorts of things? And there are many thoughts, many misunderstandings about the meaning and the significance and the effectiveness of, of baptism. And there's a reason that we have the word Baptist in our in our name, in our church, is because we consider this to be an important element of the Christian experiment, uh, exper- experience, sorry, not an experiment, uh, experience and testimony. Um, and we think it's important that we understand really what it, what it means, and that we all should do. So uh, if you're a regular attender here, it's probably time that we talk once again about what baptism is. So we're going to uh, refer to it as believer's baptism because that sums up in the, in the briefest and most succinct way, really what it is. But I want to kind of outline that a little bit for you today, and we'll begin by looking at what baptism cannot do for you. And before we do that, I want to just take a moment and pause in prayer and ask the Lord's blessing on this and on our church family. So if you would, once again, please pray with me. Father, we are grateful for the work that you have done through Christ on our behalf. The, the fact that we are guilty of, of sin, every one of us, that we have offended you by our sin, and yet that you would extend yourself to provide the solution uh, for us when we could do nothing to help ourselves. We are grateful that you loved us in this way, that you sent your Son. And so as we look at these truths in your word, we ask, Father, that you would give us clarity, that you would help us to your spirit speak through your word, that we would understand its implications for us today. We pray for our children and young people in other parts of the building who have just uh, uh, left this room. I pray that you would also um, take this time uh, to minister to their hearts and their lives, that they would come to know you at a young age and that they would know you rightly uh, in accordance with the truth of your word as you have revealed yourself and that therefore they would respond to you appropriately and love you and trust you and obey you with their lives. I pray, Father, for those who are ministering to them, that you would enable them for the task this morning. And we thank you for those who give their time and efforts to minister so lovingly to our children. We're thoughtful as well of Pastor Mike. Um, We pray that Mike would have an effective ministry um, at our sister church, that you would just give him absolute clarity of thought and of speech this morning as he shares your word, as I ask for myself this morning. I pray, Father, that uh, both of our audiences we would be open to hear what you desire for them to hear this morning. Help us to um, avoid any chaff, any, any um, useless things, but Father, I pray that you'd help us deliver faithfully the message that you desire for us to hear. We pray for our missionaries as well. We know that uh, some are rising to ministry now, others, uh, as the globe turns and the hours to come, will be rising to do the ministry uh, of Sunday uh, to the people that they are ministering to, and I pray that you would strengthen each one, give them uh, the ability to uh, 
serve you with joy and with faithfulness and with strength and with clarity, and that your spirit there also would work in those audiences, that those people would hear and understand the truth of your word and respond in faith and obedience. Father, we thank you for our church family, and, and uh, we're particularly uh, mindful of, of uh, members who, are, who have been with us uh, for many years and um, serve amongst us. We're grateful for our leadership in our deacons and the other elders and, and uh, those people who care for uh, our members through uh, personal ministry that are often are not seen throughout the week. Uh, we're mindful of those who, who serve, who come and, and mow the lawn and tidy up storage rooms and, and do repairs on the church and uh, are working through this process of the renovations, this extended process in our building to make this space uh, more effective for ministry. And I just pray, Father, for each one of these, whether they're ministering to our youth, our young adults, our children, uh, doing these uh, physical tasks around the building, taking flowers to uh, to our loved ones when they are experiencing loss or difficulty. I just pray that you would bless each one of them for their service and as part of our church family. We are grateful for each one. And we pray that you'd work in the lives of each one of our families and, and couples and, and those who are anticipating becoming couples. And I just pray, Father, that uh, you would draw each one of us closer to yourself and, and we know that by the same token we'll be drawn closer to each other. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I ask your, your grace, your help, that you would speak to my heart, speak through my lips, and open all of our minds and hearts to receive your truth. Because it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Believers' baptism. What baptism cannot do for you? First of all, and for some people this may be a little shocking, and probably not many in this audience, but I take nothing for granted. It cannot get you to heaven. It can't even get you closer to heaven. Baptism does not have that effect. There are those certainly who are under that impression that baptism might be the thing that helps them get there. But this is not held up by Scripture. God is not impressed by acts of human piety. I was so stricken, really, with sadness uh, on an occasion, I've related to some of you before, uh, years ago I had the opportunity to uh, do a, a, a couple weeks uh, of a trip to Costa Rica. And as we drove through some of the mountainous and, and countryside areas, um, it, it was an interesting sight. On, the partic- on this one particular trip, we were heading toward a, one of the major cities, and there was a, there is a large cathedral there that is a famous destination. It's been there for a very long time and is uh, considered to have certain, uh, a fountain with certain properties and so on. And so, uh, so as we were dr- driving there, we were many, many miles away from this city, much less the cathedral. And we saw people walking along on the side of the road barefoot. And this is rather rough terrain out here. This is not like walking alongside Sunny Hold drive out here. This, this, was, this was rather rough space that they're walking in, fairly narrow lanes that the cars are whizzing by on, and they're just kind of on this rough, rugged sho- shoulder of the road, and sometimes right up against the, the mountain face, the cliff face, kind of pinned in there, and they're walking barefoot, but their shoes are flung over their shoulder, 
or over their bag. And I found myself wondering, why are these people who have perfectly good shoes available to them walking barefoot on this rough terrain out in the middle of nowhere? As I discussed this and asked these questions of our guide, he explained that they are on a pilgrimage to this, to this cathedral that we're going to. And they feel that by suffering in this way, on the way there, that they will show God their sincerity and their love and that it might please him, hoping that it might please him. I found that very sad. When we arrived at the cathedral, it, it truly is impressive. It, it's very large and it's ornate and it's beautiful. And as we walked into the back of this cathedral, it was interesting to see that the, the central aisle, uh, well, really all of the aisles, but first thing you're confronted with is the central, this wide central aisle, and it's, it's a cobblestone aisle. So it's not like the nice carpet here. It's not poured you know, concrete or, or even tile or anything like that. It's, it's cobbles, stones. And people... From the back, they would genuflect, and then they would get down on their knees, and they would crawl on their knees on these cobblestones all the way down this very long aisle to the altar in front. And once again, I found myself deeply saddened that they should feel that this is what it takes to somehow, hopefully, impress God, that maybe it will contribute to their future being more pleasant, that perhaps that they can make their way to heaven. According to Scripture, this is not necessary. According to Scripture, God is not impressed by these acts of human piety. In fact, the very best that we can do, if we could from this day forward become the very best people that we could possibly be, perhaps even Achieve perfection. And of course, I've never known anyone to do so. But let's just theorize. Even if you could achieve perfection today and maintain it for the rest of your life, that will not get you to heaven. Because our very best efforts fall short. For one thing, if I achieved perfection today, I still have a past. I've still offended God. That doesn't just go away. There are some key verses in Scripture that reveal these truths. Romans chapter 3 is, is one in particular, and, and to keep it brief, we're just looking at verses 10 and 12 and then verse 23 as well. But these are very strong, indicting words coming under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the the writing of the Apostle Paul, uh, he is referring to, he's quoting here, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Both have these statements where he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Well, there goes that hope of achieving perfection. None is righteous, no, not one, not a single person on this earth. No one understands. No one seeks for God. It's, it's not our, no one just naturally just thinks, you know, I just, 
I just really want to be right with God. I want to, I want to, I want to have the relationship with God that I ought to have, and I don't want to do any of these bad things. I, just, I have no desire for these other things. I just want God. That's not the way our hearts lean. And people don't just naturally understand the vital truths, spiritual truths that they need to. He goes on to say, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And in the statement, no one does good, the meaning is, no one does all good. doesn't mean that no one has ever done a good thing, but no one is entirely good. We're all selfish. In fact, we don't have to be taught that, do we? Those of you who have had children, you know that at a very, very young age, we display selfishness, right? I've had three children. They're wonderful children. I love them. They're, they're fantastic. I wouldn't trade them for anyone else's children. But it didn't take long for them to display selfishness, even as babies. And a parent can remember those times where you're going through, it's like, what is wrong with you, child? You know, you lay them down to rest, and they are screaming bloody murder just at the top of their lungs. I fed you, I burped you, I changed you, I held you and rocked you and sang songs to you, and I laid you down in your bed, and then, ah! You pick this child up from screaming, you know, red-faced, going hoarse, okay, you pick them up, all good all of a sudden. What is that? If not, Selfishness. Hold me. Make me feel good. Don't leave me here alone. I need you. Well, okay, so we learn early that this is a characteristic of us all. Okay, so none of us are, are innocent. And, and this is one of the first things that we need to make clear. Um, uh, when we, as, as believers, those who have put their faith in Christ, and we converse with other people, some people have the, the notion that we as Christians think that somehow we are better people by being Christians. And the truth is, quite the opposite. We are the ones who have acknowledged our sin and our guilt and our innate selfishness. We recognize that we can never achieve righteousness that will satisfy God. We recognize that we desperately need what he offers because we cannot do it for ourselves. We are not better people. We are, well, hopefully we will become better people as we strive to live more in a way that God desires. But we are not better because we're Christians. We are forgiven. That's the difference. We're forgiven. We recognize our guilt, and we've accepted his forgiveness. So these indicting words, in fact, he goes on in verse 23 to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, none of us reaches his standard. His standard is his own perfect holiness, his own absolute righteousness, his, his measureless goodness. That's his standard. None of us reaches that standard. We all fall short of the glory of God. So we all find ourselves in this guilty place. So my very best efforts... Uh, in Isaiah, these, it's referred to as filthy rags, and it's actually a very graphic word in the, in the Hebrew. It's what would be used after going to the toilet. 
my best efforts, my, my, my greatest human efforts at righteousness are compared to God's holiness used toilet paper. These are, this is God's view. Okay? Is it a cruel view? Well, I think we just can't understand the, the distance between what we call goodness and God's absolute holiness and goodness and righteousness. We just don't understand. To, to begin to understand the idea of that, the problem is that we, we tend to measure ourselves against each other. You know, I'm pretty good compared to, all right? We can all find somebody who's worse than us, right? I mean, worst case scenario, you can say, well, at least I'm better than Hitler, better than Pol Pot, right? I mean, there's always somebody who seems worse than us. But see, that's, that comparison is, is so poor. It's so weak, right? We consider, oh, offenses against God. I'm not a bad person. I've never robbed a bank. I've never killed anybody. I've never this. I've never that, okay? But you see, even the smallest offense makes us so desperately guilty before God. Because it's not how we measure the significance of the offense. The important measure is the person against whom we have committed the offense. Uh, imagine the uh, much-loved, recently departed Queen of England. Right? As she tour around the world, not everybody was a fan, but, but those who, who really appreciated you know, the Queen, she was held in such high regard, and she was known to be a very, very gracious woman. Well, imagine if she pays a visit to comes to Australia, if she were to come to Australia and pay a visit to uh, one of the local public schools, any school for that matter, and, and she's about to uh, walk into a classroom to visit the children and read to the children, perhaps, and as she approaches the door, the, door, the classroom door flings open, and a couple of children come rushing out the door, chasing each other, being silly, being ornery, and they smash into the queen and knock her down to the ground and run off laughing. Now, if this was just another one of their peers, there'd be some upset and they'd be, oh, you need to go back and apologize. And that would be that. But the Queen of England? If she's the one knocked over and rushed past so rudely, there'd be news reports all day long about the horrible child who knocked over the Queen. Because the offense is not measured by what we think of the seriousness of the act. The offense is measured by the person who's offended. And so our smallest sin, our smallest act of selfishness is great because it's ultimately committed against an infinite holy God. What can we do? What's to be done? There's good news. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, uh, Paul is writing to believers and he says, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, that takes away the whole measures of comparison faultiness, of that, that fallacy, right? You see, we're forgiven by God's grace. We don't deserve grace. Is right, that it's, it's unmerited favor. 
So we are recipients of God's grace. We don't deserve his forgiveness, but he gives it anyway. There's one way that it had, that had to be made possible, and that is through the sacrifice of Christ. And we can't do anything to contribute to it. That's why it says, uh, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Because if we think that we contribute in any way to the salvation, then, then we would become arrogant. We would be comparing ourselves. Yeah, I've achieved salvation. I've earned God's grace because I've become such a good person. Right? But, but this scripture says there's no room for anyone to boast. We can only be grateful for God's grace. So how did we get it? Well, simply by faith. By just accepting the gift of God's grace is forgiveness. It's simply accepting by faith. It's not walking for miles and miles barefooted down the side of a rough road in the mountains and crawling on your knees down a cobblestone aisle to kiss a statue or the feet of a statue. These things don't impress God. It's not going into the water of baptism. It's not going and getting wet. That doesn't impress God. That doesn't help us get to heaven or even any closer. Those things only come as a gift. Secondly, what baptism cannot do for you is it cannot make you a Christian or even a member of this church. There are churches that present baptism that way, as though you can be baptized into our church. Or by being baptized, you become a Christian. This is not what Scripture says. In fact, we have the New Testament record, which is very clear. All mentions of baptism in the New Testament, it's, it's quite clear that they all follow faith. Baptism follows faith. Now, I'm not going to read all of these passages. We can, we can pop these up here as I mention them, but, but just for those of you who maybe are familiar with the, the accounts, because you've already read them before, um, Acts chapter 2, verse 41 we have the thousands of people who hear the gospel message for the first time in Jerusalem. They've come from all over the civilized world, many countries and languages represented, and the disciples of Christ are out there sharing the gospel message, and thousands hear and, and understand and accept Christ on that, at that Feast of Pentecost, and it says that they believed, and they were baptized and added to the number of the church. Acts Chapter 8, verses 35 through 38, we have the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, he was, he was um, a high official uh, in the courts of Egypt. Philip uh, had the opportunity well, you know, to join him in his chariot and explain the scriptures. He had been reading scrolls, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet, and, and Philip came and explained how all of these things pointed to Christ as Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and, and he came to understand and he believed. And so his following that then as they came across some, uh, you know, a body of water and he said, well, here's water. Is there any reason why I can't be baptized? He understood already that that was the sign of what had taken place in his heart, of his understanding and faith. Uh, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who later became known as Paul the Apostle, uh, three, day, three days after his, his conversion, his coming to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for him, accepting that by faith. Three days later, he follows Christ in the obedience of baptism. Cornelius, chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, verses 43 through 48. Cornelius, you remember, was a, was a Roman centurion. And God had revealed himself to him, and because he, he, was, 
He was interested. He was wondering. He had sincere questions. And God said, you need to send messengers to get Peter and have him come and explain what you need to understand. And, and Peter did and came. And, and Cornelius had gathered a whole group of people, all of his family and near friends had gathered in his home to hear. And they all came to an understanding of what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And they received by faith what Christ had done for them. And God affirmed that decision by uh, giving them a certain display even of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Peter recognized straight away that they had made a genuine decision and therefore baptism followed for them. Acts chapter 16, uh, we see Lydia, the Turkish seller of purple dye. She was a very wealthy, wealthy, powerful woman in that, in that place. And she uh, came to understand uh, life by faith in Jesus Christ. And she uh, followed in baptism after that. And then we have the Philippian jailer. Um, Paul and Silas had been wrongfully accused while they were in, in Philippi, uh, which is also what we would know as Western Turkey today. And he had, uh, been, they had been beaten. They were put in shackles in this horrible deep dungeon, this dark dungeon. They were singing songs of praise to God through Christ. And, and God sent an earthquake that opened up the prison and this, and this prison jailer came in and and was fearing and, and trembling and said, what must I do to be saved? We'll look at this passage here in just a second. And then uh, Paul and Silas talked to his family and shared with them, and they came to Christ and followed in baptism. We'll read that passage in a moment, but I also want to mention Crispus. Crispus was one of the Jewish um, pharisaical leaders, um, or very possibly um, he might have been a Sadducee because he was a ruler of the synagogue in, in Corinth, and, uh, and he came to understand the truth and was converted, and also baptism followed for him. So it was always that sequence. It's the, it's the understanding of the gospel message, it's the response in faith, and then baptism that follows. Just as an example, since I haven't read all of them, uh, let's look at Acts chapter 16, uh, the passage in verses 30 through 34. This is the occasion of that Philippian jailer. It says, then he brought them out. He, the jailer, brought Paul and Silas out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe. Here's the formula, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. You know, anyone who accepts, who believes, responds. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And then he was baptized at once, he and all his family. You see the following of baptism after the decision of faith. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The rejoicing was not over the baptism. It was the rejoicing over the belief in God. The baptism was simply an act that demonstrates the decision that had been made. And so that moves us to our next major point, why a believer should get baptized. Okay? We talked about what baptism cannot do for you. Well, then why should a person get baptized? And there's one simple answer for this. And we could expound on other secondary things, but really the primary singular answer is Jesus commanded it for his disciples. It's Jesus' command. It's a matter of obedience. A disciple, if you're not familiar, you know, you might hear the word but not really know what that means. You might just think of cultic people who wear funny robes and do funny things. But a disciple, this, this, this Greek word just means a follower. It's just a, like a student. 
where you consider someone to be your mentor and follow them. And so the disciples of Christ are commanded by Christ to be baptized. Well, so one of the clearest passages of this is Roman, is rather Matthew chapter 28, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And here again, because I'm taking this text just kind of plunking into its context here, we should understand a little bit. This is right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after his death on the cross, his burial in the tomb, and his resurrection. And he had told his disciples in advance that these things would take place. They didn't really get it. They didn't really understand it all beforehand. But he told them anyway so they would know, and then they can reflect back and get it when it happened. And so he said, after all of these things, meet me on this mountain. It was a familiar place you know, back there in Galilee. And so, so, he, so when they got the news that he had apparently risen from the dead, they went there. They were reminded to go. So, so here he walks up to them in the flesh. Jesus came and said to them, declaring what the result is of what he had done on the cross and through his death, burial, and resurrection. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We can easily read past that for the next part. But we should probably pause and let that sink in a little bit. After Jesus did what he did, he was able to say with absolute confidence, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Ruler of the universe standing before them in the flesh. And then there's a so what that follows that. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, here's the comforting words, I am with you always to the end of the age. You do not go out on your own. I'll be with you. So this is the, what we call the Great Commission, and it's for all believers. Because of what Jesus did, because of what he accomplished, the results that he is the ruler of the universe, that he achieved what no one else could achieve, and God the Father has elevated him to that position of being the only one and the only way. Because of that, we who have received this truth and have benefited from it, are given this commission. Reach peoples from all the nations of the world and make them disciples of Jesus Christ. Bring them into followership of Jesus Christ and teach them, but not before that, baptizing them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then teaching them all the things that Christ had taught, all the things that we need to know. This is our effort. So baptism is a command of Jesus Christ. It follows, it's a part of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. We've seen that it's not part of salvation, what we call salvation, being forgiven by God. That's a gift of His grace received by faith. So can a person be a Christian and go to heaven without being baptized? Yes. Can a person be baptized and not go to heaven? Yes. Because baptism doesn't have anything to do with our salvation. Baptism is part and parcel of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, being obedient to Jesus Christ, because this is his command. 
So how does baptism, this is the next, the third major point, is how baptism demonstrates faith in Jesus Christ. Why, what is really the significance? What's the connection to going down on the water and doing this thing? That, uh, why, would God, why would Jesus command this? Well, it is a personal, public identification with Jesus Christ. It's a way that we stand before onlookers, and sometimes you know, this has been done. Back in the earliest church, they would, they would go down to the, to the Jordan River. And whoever might be around to observe would see these people do this thing as they would proclaim publicly, even though in many cases, very probably to their detriment socially, they were saying, I am following Jesus Christ. I'm now identifying with this person, with Jesus Christ. And how are they identifying with him? Well, the next point is that it is a tangible, physical display of the intangible spiritual reality that the individual has gained, a new eternal life, by trusting entirely in the sufficient soul-saving work of Jesus which is achieved by his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. You see, the, the act of baptism as we observe it, going out of the water and asking if a person is prepared to declare publicly that they have put their faith in Jesus Christ, and then lowering them to the water, as we say, I'll baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus commanded, and bring them back up out of the water. It's, it's a pageant. It's a demonstration of deep, personal identification with the saving work of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross, he was buried in the tomb, and he rose again to life so that we, with him, can die to the old sinful flesh and rise with him in the newness of life that he gives us as a result of our faith in his work. And so it is that very vivid, very obvious and public way that a person can say, this is where I put my hope. This is where all my trust lies. It's not in my own efforts. It's not in my own righteousness. It's not in my own piety. It's in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, my only hope and my certainty. I trust that what he did for me is sufficient. Paul refers to this in Romans chapter 6, in the first few verses, now in the context, he's challenging uh, people who are struggling with the idea of grace. Uh, people were arguing about, well, grace, you're, you're saying that I don't have to do anything to become good enough to be accepted by God. You're saying it's just God forgives for everything. Well, then I guess I can just do whatever I want, right? Just woohoo, anything goes because I've, I've trusted Jesus, so it's all good. He's going to forgive me, right? And, and Paul's, Paul says, God forbid that you should act that way because, because you have identified with the death of Jesus Christ and, and in so doing, you know, dying to, your, to, to yourself. The, the, you've tried in the past to be autonomous. You've tried in the past to make yourself the better person and to somehow achieve something better for, the, for your future. And you're recognizing that that's not working. And so you're dying to that hope as you identify with the death of Christ. And now you've been given this new life in Christ. Why would you continue to live like that other person who is doing everything for themselves without regard for God? 
when you've been given this great gift of forgiveness and grace and eternal life, we should live differently. So this is the context. And so this is, these are Paul's words. Um, just the smallest nugget of that passage is Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, just as I explained? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, might walk, might live day to day in newness of life. Something has changed. There's also something significant about that reference that he says, the Christ was raised from the dead by the, by the glory of the Father. You see, according to the Scripture account, it's God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus made the sacrifice. He was buried. God the Father raised Him back to life. And this was God's indication. This is the receipt that says, the price is paid, and I'm satisfied. It's done. I find it satisfactory. And so when we even sang the song that we sang earlier, when we sang His Robes for Mine, we talked about propitiation one. That word propitiation, that, that theological word means satisfaction. God's justice satisfied through what Jesus Christ has done. And so I'm the beneficiary of, of His propitiation. He satisfied God's wrath for all of my guilt and sin so that I can go free. We sang that when we sang, how deep is your love? He endured these things so that I wouldn't have to. Because even if I did, what I have to offer isn't good enough. I could not justify myself. I could not cleanse myself from my sins, even by my own death, even by my own self-sacrifice. So it was God the Father who accepts God the Son's sacrifice as being sufficient. And so this becomes a critical part of the decision of faith is having an understanding and, and embracing it. And so we see just a little further in this book in Romans chapter 10. Here is really, uh, again, kind of as, as Paul mentioned to the jailer before, here's another statement of this formula. What does it take to be forgiven? What does it take to be saved? In other words, having your soul saved from the wrath of God being certain that you can enter heaven one day. What does it take? Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he kind of doubles back in explaining that. So for with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So what do all these terms mean? Let's just kind of Touch them again. Well, the confession with your mouth, that's part of what we do. When we go into baptism, we're asked, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? And, and we say, yes, I have. You're confessing before these people where your hope lies. Okay? But there's particular content here. This is very important. You're confessing that Jesus is Lord. Now, that is actually, Jesus is God. As Paul writes to these Romans, his audience, these, these citizens of Rome, they understood very well that they were expected, they were called upon every year to go to one of the Roman temples and 
and pay a little fee and bow before a statue of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And it was a part of this whole system of Caesar set himself up to be a, a god or a demigod. And part of being a good Roman citizen was to make this confession. Caesar is God. And he's my Lord. So Paul writes to these Romans and says, you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You need to acknowledge the deity of Jesus Christ and his position of lordship over you. And you also need to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, indicating that the price that Jesus paid was sufficient, that his atonement was a complete covering for your sin. And so if you are believing in your heart that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf, this is what it takes, recognizing the deity of Christ, recognizing the sufficiency of the saving work of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on your behalf, you will be saved. Isn't that good news? There's nothing in there about walking for miles and bare feet down rough, rugged roads. There's nothing in there about giving lots of money to a church. There's nothing in there about starving yourself or walking on hot coals or, or any act of human piety. It's recognizing the person and the saving work of Jesus Christ and trusting in that and accepting it for what it is. And so he says, you are justified. We, think, we use that word in the song as well, right? Justified, which, you know, our, nice, our easy to remember Sunday school explanation for that is to be justified is to be given this status that's just as if I'd never sinned. God wipes the slate clean. He says, not guilty. Yes, you were guilty, but the penalties have all been paid, so now I declare you not guilty. The record has been cleansed. So we don't have to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. We don't have to stand before God, wringing our hands, wondering, I wonder if I did enough good things, as though there was a scale system, right? I wonder if maybe, maybe my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and maybe God will accept me. That's all irrelevant. Because by accepting the work of Jesus Christ, God has said, not guilty, you're welcome to heaven. So you see, it's all on him. It's all on Jesus Christ. So this act of baptism that we'll be observing today, these individuals have come to this understanding. They've, they've accepted by faith that Jesus paid it all for them that we owe all to him. As we sang, my life is not my own because of what Jesus has, has done. And so they're identifying in this graphic, physical, tangible way with Jesus Christ and accepting on their behalf publicly what he did when he died and was buried and raised and offers them newness of life. So there's, there are no spiritual brownie points in this. It's simply a matter of obedience. It's something, what, something that Jesus has called his followers to do. And so we celebrate it because what we're really celebrating is that decision of faith in a person's life, that commitment to following Jesus Christ, to accept him as Lord and Savior. And so when we join again uh, over at the Portelli's, it's a time of celebration. It's just, 
enjoying the fellowship of believers as these individuals follow Jesus Christ obediently into believers' baptism. So I invite you to pray with me, and then we'll sing together. Uh, it's one of the great hymns of the faith that describes so beautifully what we've just been talking about. Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. Father, uh, we're grateful that you were willing to provide and to accept this sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Thank you for making a, a way for us. We who deserve your condemnation because we are all guilty of sin, we have all offended you. We are so thankful that you loved us in this way, that you sent your only son, that whoever would believe in him does not have to perish, but can have everlasting life, eternal life. We are grateful for that. And so, uh, Father, I lift up to you these um, brothers and sisters today who have accepted uh, your gift of grace and who are today taking this step to, to follow your Son, Jesus Christ, in the obedience of believers' baptism. We rejoice with them over their faith, over their certain status now as, as your sons and daughters who are guaranteed forgiveness, guaranteed eternal salvation in heaven. Uh, we are just so grateful that they have come to this place and and enjoy that status that you have granted them. And so we celebrate with them today, and we pray that any who have not uh, yet done so would understand their need to place their faith in Jesus Christ as well, that they can have the same certainty. It's in his name we pray.